best-selling author here to promote the kindest red a story of hijab and friendship a story of practicing kindness following her two younger sisters asia and faiza thank you so much for joining us congratulations on this book thank you so much for having me so you were such a change maker even before becoming an author but I, i'm curious what challenges you may have faced that that when you decided you know i'm going to write this book that you wanted it to focus on a kind powered world i uh grew up you know playing sports i grew up not too far from new york city and maplewood and um a pretty diverse space but oftentimes i found myself you know 
this one Muslim kid who wore hijab. And when I would read these various books, I didn't see characters who looked like me. So I thought, you know, children's books are the perfect space, you know, to tell these various stories, um, to share stories about kindness and celebrating the things that may make us different or maybe the things that make us similar. And and when you say that, I do want to just kind of piggyback off of that because there aren't a lot of books where you see Muslim families portrayed or certainly young women wearing a hijab. So when you decided you were going to write a book, was that paramount that, okay, I'm going to make sure that I see someone who looks like me and my younger sisters reflected in the book? Well, uh, I wrote The Proudest Blue, um, a story of uh, hijab and family and it was this unique opportunity to tackle the story of hijab, but tell it from the reference of a Muslim family and these Muslim characters, but also brown characters, and to continue Faiza and Asiya's story in The Kindest Red. Um, I, I love this book so much. I think it's a celebration of friendship. It's a celebration of family, um, but also kindness you know mm -hmm. how often do we have the opportunity to remind kids that they have the power to change the world you write in particular i want a kind world a world where kindness passes from one to another like mama passing on her dress like asia doing my hair what are some of the early acts of kindness that have stuck with you that, that you really remember and resonate growing up in an african-american household you know i have older sisters and i remember a hair tie or a dress or even a hijab were often, that, that I would wear were often those of my sisters. And so uh, whether it's helping, you know, your little sister tie her shoe or it's your older sister, you know, helping to do your hair, those really small acts of kindness can show up um, and be reflected in our children in really big ways. And you see that throughout the story with Faiza, her and her friends learning about kindness in the classroom, but really her, their teacher helping them understand that the things that they want to see reflected in the world, whether it's with their friends or their family, um, they can show up in really meaningful ways. Um, obviously, the story is coming out during a time when there's so much focus internationally on the death of Masa Amini in Iran for allegedly improperly wearing her hijab. And I'm just curious for a little girl, as, such as the little girl in your book, and, and your thoughts, not, not to uh, get too political here, um, but, but how that particular notion resonates with you. What I think is really important for all of us to understand and continue to support is a woman's right to choose, whether it's in the U.S. when it comes to reproductive rights or it's a woman and her hijab in France and in India or even in Iran. Um, the bottom line is that we should have full autonomy of our bodies and have the choice to show up in the world as we want. And um, that's, a, that's what I think about when I think of, you know, the unfortunate circumstances in Iran or here in the U.S. and across the globe, is the bottom line is that we as women should have a choice of what we wear and the way that we want to show up in the world. And, uh, of course, the book uh, really places a heavy value on on a loving family and strong friendships and dreaming big and and these little acts of kindness what else do you hope that anyone who picks up the book uh, will take away you know it's my hope that uh, through children's you know children's books uh, why I think I really wanted to get into the space is because it helps you know really provide a window into the Muslim community. I think it also is a lens, you know, for our children, whether it's, you know, brown, 
you know, boys and girls, whether it's, you know, Muslims or anyone who's outside of those communities is a chance for us to see us in a space or from the perspective that we're not often shown. Um, so it's uh, a celebration, I guess, of just who I am and the communities I feel a part of. And I want us to feel celebrated and to feel that love and that kindness through this work. We thank you so much, Ibtiaj, for spending uh, your time with us today and, and sharing the message of, of The Kindest Red. Thank you so much. And we want our viewers to know The Kindest Red, a story of hijab and friendship can be found wherever books are sold starting tomorrow. Fair, Harry is describing the morning of August 31st, 1997, when his father, now King Charles, delivered the devastating news that Princess Diana had been killed in a Paris car crash. As a dad, I would never, ever want to have to break that news, ever. So I have a huge amount of sympathy and compassion and understanding now about how ill-equipped, I guess, my dad was. How ill-equipped anybody would be in that situation. One of the hardest things for me is that time at Kensington Palace when William and myself and my father were walking around looking at all the bouquets of flowers. Extraordinary thing to do within a week of losing your mum. But nonetheless, we did it. And there I was, shaking their hands. Shaking their hands of everybody. And their hands were wet, and they were wiping away the tears. Their own tears. And yet, I hadn't, at that point, shed a single tear. I felt how are complete strangers most of which had never met our mother, showing such open emotion, whereas the two of us are just standing here completely in shock, completely numb. 
Were you comforted in any way? I don't think my family knew what to do. I don't think they knew what to do. And I can't say whether other families would have done a better job. But I wish I had the ability or the opportunity to do some form of therapy or at least be able to talk more about losing my mum and celebrating her life. But, but who's to say that at age 12, whether I would have even said yes to that? Did you feel guilty for not trying? Yeah, I mean, again, once I started therapy, I started to understand that, or at least I thought, that there was a huge weight on my chest due to the fact that I hadn't cried and that my mum needed me to cry or I needed to cry to prove to my mum that I missed her. That was an interesting moment in my life because I suddenly realized that actually she didn't want me to cry. She really just wanted me to be happy. And that was a real shift for me in that grief period. You talked about how for a while you, in your mind, magical thing. you said she's hiding. Yeah. There's no way this could have happened to my mom. She is hiding. Why do you think you went that route? Yeah, 100% it's a defense mechanism, right? I think for anyone, especially if you're a kid. I was 12 years old. I refused to accept that that was, that was what had happened. If you ask me the questions like, how would your life have differed if you'd done therapy then? Well, I probably would have done less drugs. I would have probably drunk less, partied less. Not to say I wouldn't have partied and done all those things. I probably would have done, but not for the reason that I was doing them. For me, it was either trying to find a feeling or numb a feeling. So I think my life would have turned out very different, but my military service literally saved me. You two tours in Afghanistan. You learned to fly an Apache helicopter, which is not easy to do, and not many people know how to do that. It seems like you found your purpose in the military. It seems perfect, because I then had the opportunity to be part of something bigger than myself. I was born into service. It runs in my blood. I'm always going to serve communities. I'm always going to serve people as much as I can and use this position for good. Like, and I really get genuine healing from helping other people. And a large part of that was from the military. I mean, ultimately, it challenged me beyond anything else that I could have ever imagined. Were you surprised that you recognized some of these things within yourself that you've seen other soldiers suffer from that possibly could have gone back to your childhood when you were 12 years old and you lost your mother. Yeah, and, you know, for, for me, it was very much PTSI, more of an injury than a disorder. And I fully appreciate that for a lot of these guys and girls, not just in the military, but across society as a whole, that people are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but I've tried to reframe it as much as possible to say it's an injury because you can actually heal from it. In 2014, Harry lost the Invictus Games. Over the next four days, we will see some truly remarkable achievements. And I have no doubt that lives will be changed this weekend. Bringing wounded veterans together from all over the world to compete and pave a new path. Rudder beginning to pull away a little bit. We need to be able to create the opportunity for them to be able to redefine themselves post-injury. And that in itself will heal the whole family. And I don't know whether it's selfish or not, but I started to feel a huge amount of healing in myself as well. Healing for himself, Harry says, finally came with therapy. The final piece of the puzzle that helped him process his grief over his mother. But he says his mother still has a strong presence in his life. As I talk about her grave, William and I, you know, having that conversation about the fact that he felt as though 
she was very much in his life and helped set him up. And that she felt as though she'd now moved over and was helping me set my life up. A life with his own family, his wife Megan and their two children, Archie and Lilibet. Yet, he still remains hopeful for reconciliation. You said you want your father and brother back. Do you think that this book is going to bring them back, or is it going to further divide them? I thought about it long and hard, and as far as I see it, the divide couldn't be greater before this book. You get a chance to tell your story now. Your brother may never have that chance to tell his side of the story. Are you sympathetic to that? Yes, 100%. This book is not about the relationship between me and William. This book is not about the relationship between me and my family. It's only about my life. But within my life, the relationship between me and my family and me and the British press naturally plays a huge part in how I am where I am today. Well, the critics are going to say, well, you're taking private, private struggles and you're, you're making money off of them. You're getting paid from it. So it's almost as if you've sold out your family. I'm sure that's probably what some people think or what some people want to think. For me, seen my family and the institutions part in constantly feeding the British press with lies, mistruths, disinformation, like the whole lot, especially more so than, uh, than ever over the last six years, and the damage that that did to my wife at the time. The only way that I can stop that from happening, the only way that I can protect us, the only way that I can correct those mistruths is by writing something, the truth, in one place without going through the same people that they chose to go through. Otherwise, you're just feeding the beast. And I fully accept that writing a book is feeding the beast anyway. But I'm left at a position where these mistruths need to be corrected. Is there a part of you that can see you and your family going back to the UK, becoming working rulers for the monarchy? No. I just don't think, I don't think it's ever going to be possible. I don't think that you know, even if there was an agreement or an arrangement between me and my family, there is that third party that is going to do everything they can to make sure that that isn't possible. Not stopping us from necessarily going back, but making it unsurvivable. And that's really sad because that is essentially breaking the relationship between us. If there was something in the future where you know we can continue to support the Commonwealth, then that's of course on the table. But I genuinely believe that if me and my family can reconcile, can put our differences behind us, but first there needs to be conversation and accountability. And if that doesn't happen, then that's very sad. But I will focus on my my life, my amazing family that I'm so grateful to have my two kids who were bouncing up and down here this morning when I was trying to uh, prepare for this. I guess that was the preparation. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't, I'm not angry anymore. There are things that will still anger me, but I'm not angry anymore because I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. Supporters of ex-president Jair Bolsonaro claim the election was stolen.
Remarkable recovery for Damar Hamlin, the NFL player who went into cardiac arrest on the field one week ago, returns to Buffalo. The next battle for the House, the vote which determines how the House does business, and could tell us what Kevin McCarthy had to give up in order to get the Speaker's gavel. Will they come to an agreement on their first big test? Rachel Scott is on the Hill. A missing wife, her husband, faces charges for allegedly misleading investigators in their search for her. Now authorities report a disturbing discovery in their Massachusetts home. Using an artist's lyrics against them in court, that's what's unfolding in Atlanta as the trial of rapper Young Thug begins. The move sent shockwaves throughout the music industry. It's never a good idea, whether it's under artistic expression or any other means, to divulge details because they can and will be used against you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Lindsay Davis. Thank you so much for streaming with us. Another busy beginning to the week in Brazil. Authorities are processing some 1,200 protesters they detained today after one of the worst attacks in the 38-year history of that country's democracy. Thousands of supporters of former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro broke into government buildings in the capital city of Brasilia on Sunday. Their actions were based on the false claim that Bolsonaro won the election. We have Marcus Moore standing by from Brasilia with more on the whereabouts and condition of the former president. But we begin tonight in Washington, where after a week of dysfunction, paralysis, and 15 rounds of voting, the House has its next speaker, but not before a near fight on the House floor late Friday night when tensions boiled over. And it wasn't until early Saturday morning on the 15th round of voting that Republican Kevin McCarthy was finally able to secure the votes that he needed to become the next speaker of the House. The question now, how much did he have to give up to get there? And will that make for a tenuous tenure? Rachel Scott leads us off tonight from Capitol Hill. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy charging up the aisle to confront Congressman Matt Gates after losing 14 ballots to be speaker. Alabama Congressman Mike Rogers so furious he lunged at Gates and had to be physically restrained. Duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. But on the 15th vote, McCarthy pulled it out. And tonight, the new Speaker of the House facing his first big test. The House voting tonight on new rules, including a host of concessions McCarthy made to win the support of rebel right-wing conservatives. One provision would allow a single lawmaker to force a vote on removing the Speaker. Moderate Republicans concerned about the chaos on the floor and about the new rules. Were you concerned about how some of these deals were cut? Any horse training or backroom deals? That that doesn't, that's not okay, it shouldn't be tolerated. McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republican votes tonight, and he will have to prove he can control his unruly conference. Republican leadership was scrambling to address those concerns from those moderates. Tonight, the House Rules package did pass. Only one Republican voted against it. Lindsay. Rachel, thank you. Now to the high-stakes summit in Mexico. President Biden is there tonight meeting with Mexico's president following Biden's visit to the border this weekend. His administration is now taking new steps to try to stem the tide of migrants, but will their efforts have an impact? Here's ABC's Mary Bruce traveling with the president. President Biden tonight meeting with the Mexican president amid the immigration and humanitarian crisis on the border. It comes 24 hours after Biden, for the first time as president, traveled to the border to see for himself. We need a lot of resources we're going to get Just last month, about 2,500 people a day were apprehended in El Paso. The administration surged money and manpower, and now the numbers have dropped to about 700. Biden's new plan expels migrants from Nicaragua, Venezuela, Haiti, and Cuba who cross the border illegally. 
The U.S. will accept 30,000 migrants a month from those four countries who meet strict criteria, including having a sponsor in the U.S. Texas's Republican governor says it's too little, too late. The president who caused the chaos of the border needed to be here. It just so happens he's two years and about $20 billion too late. Now, we took that criticism to the White House, and they insist this has always been a priority for this president. And they say it's Republicans in Congress who are failing to act on this issue. And while immigration will be topic number one at these meetings here, the administration recognizes this is a very complicated problem and one they say will not be solved in a single summit. Lindsay. Mary Bruce, thank you. Now to those stunning images from Brazil showing government buildings under attack, echoing scenes from our own insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Similarly, the rioting sparked by false claims that the presidential election was stolen from ex-president Bolsonaro. It was used Marcus Morris in Brazil for us tonight. Tonight, an emergency declared, and at least 1,500 people arrested after a violent attack in the heart of Brazil's democracy. Thousands of supporters of far-right former President Jair Bolsonaro storming all branches of government, including Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidential offices, attacking police, even assaulting this officer and his force, a gun company sharing this video online, destroying property, police firing tear gas, pushing back the protesters. The horrific scenes echoing the January 6th insurrection on the U.S. Capitol nearly two years ago to the day saw eerily similar moments. These broken windows, hundreds of people storming this government compound, but officials have been able to regain control of all of the buildings here. The rioters repeating a familiar lie promoted by Bolsonaro himself, falsely claiming the October election he lost to Lula da Silva was stolen. Bolsonaro, the so-called Trump of the tropics, refusing to attend President Lula's inauguration just days ago. Bolsonaro even leaving the country, settling in the Orlando, Florida area. Bolsonaro admitted to a Florida hospital today for abdominal pain and later released getting this picture. The White House today saying it would consider a Brazilian request to send Bolsonaro back to Brazil if one is made. We have not, as of now, received any official requests from the Brazilian government related to Bolsonaro. Hours after the protest erupted, Bolsonaro criticized the rioters, saying destruction and invasion of public buildings are not part of democracy. President Biden speaking with President Lula by phone, pledging, quote, unwavering support. And Lindsay, this is what it looks like tonight here in the government compound. You can see a heavy police presence, but things have been calm throughout most of the day here in Brasilia. Uh, the White House, meanwhile, has said that they would be willing to send Bolsonaro back here to Brazil if there was a, an official request. Tonight, he remains in Florida. Meanwhile, President Lula is expected to be in Washington in February, where he is set to meet with President Biden face to face. Lindsay. For more now on the news from both Mexico as well as Brazil, we're joined now by White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. Mr. Kirby, we thank you so much for joining us. Uh, President Biden and the leaders of Canada and Mexico condemned the attacks on Brazil's democratic institutions over the weekend. Uh, what's the White House looking to see happen in Brazil to help ensure a peaceful transfer of power there? Well, obviously, we fully support Brazil's democratic institutions. You heard the president speak very clearly about that. Uh, yesterday, uh, now look, President Lula has called for an investigation. We want to make sure that that can play out so that the, the Brazilian authorities can get to the bottom of, of what happened here. Uh, but it was clearly dangerous. And there's no place, as the president said, outrageous uh, for that kind of political violence to occur uh, in any democracy. Uh, Brazil's former leader Bolsonaro is now in Florida, where he's been admitted to a U.S. hospital. 
Is the administration at all considering asking him to leave the country or canceling his current visa or with U.S. support extraditing him back to Brazil if requested? I'm not legally uh, able to talk about uh, an individual visa case one way or the other, um, and we can't ver uh, verify independently uh, his particular uh, whereabouts. Uh, but in general, uh, uh, when somebody's traveling on uh, a, a visa, uh, like what we would call an A visa or a diplomatic visa, they have some obligations of their own uh, with respect to their activities. Um, and again, as for extradition, uh, I'm not aware of any indication or any request for extradition uh, by Brazil. Uh, so again, I wouldn't get ahead of where we are right now. If there were to be such a request, we would obviously treat it as seriously as we would do any extradition request. Sure, understood. Uh, former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has called those who invaded Brazil's institutions, quote, Brazilian freedom fighters and continued spreading conspiracy theories that Lula, quote, stole the elections, similar to the message from Trump loyalists ahead of January 6th, of course. Uh, what's the White House's message to any Americans who might be linked to the violence in Brazil? Should they be investigated? Well, we're going to see where the Brazilian investigation goes here. Um, and I, again, I don't want to get ahead of, of where they are, uh, but they have every right, in fact, every responsibility to their own citizens uh, to fully investigate this and find out uh, who is responsible and, and, and what those responsible uh, uh, actually did to, to bring this political uh, violence about. Now, should they need or request any support from the United States with respect to their investigation, we would obviously uh, do that. Uh, but I, I don't want to get ahead of, of you know, exactly where we are right now. As far as the, the summit in Mexico, what concrete commitments is the president looking for to help stem the tide of drug trafficking, especially when it comes to deadly fentanyl coming across the southern border? Is the Mexican government capable of addressing this with real cooperation with the U.S.? Well, I already know that there has been a good cooperation between Mexico and the United States with respect to drug trafficking. I mean, just since August of last year, we've been able to seize more than 20,000 pounds of fentanyl at the border. We've got to keep the, the pressure on these uh, drug traffickers, particularly when it comes to opioids like, like, and, and with fentanyl. Uh, we're going to continue to have those discussions with Mexican authorities uh, here tonight in Mexico when the president meets bilaterally uh, with the president, but also uh, tomorrow in the context of the trilateral discussions with Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada. I mean, this is an issue that affects us all, uh, and there's certainly more that can be done, uh, but I, you can bet that fentanyl specifically and getting at this challenge uh, will be key on the agenda tomorrow uh, and they will be looking at ways to improve information sharing uh, in, in uh, improving uh, law enforcement cooperation uh, and really trying to to uh, to crack down even further uh, on this deadly smuggling as you know some have been highly critical of president biden's uh, visit there including uh, governor abbott of texas uh, what would you say that biden has learned from his visit to the border yesterday that will inform policy on addressing the flow of migrants going forward he certainly comes into this meeting in mexico city uh, informed by his discussions yesterday and the focus yesterday in el paso was really on, on, on sitting down with the border patrol agents, uh, as well as local and state officials, including faith leaders, non-governmental organizations, all of those who are involved in dealing with the migrants, whether it's from a 
security perspective, a health perspective, uh, or certainly a legal perspective. He's, he clearly recognizes that they need more resources, and he's going to be saying it here in Mexico, but certainly when he gets back to Washington, uh, that he's going to devote uh, even more energy and effort to devoting those resources, getting those resources uh, for those individuals at the border. I would note, it's not as if he hasn't paid attention to this. I mean, on day one, he put forward an immigration reform bill, which included, among many initiatives, uh, additional border security uh, resources that the Congress has not taken up. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby joining us from Mexico. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Tonight we are closely tracking a parade of cyclones lashing the Pacific coast. At least 12 people have died and 10 more inches of rain are in the forecast. Six feet of mountain snow. Winds could gust up to 80 miles an hour. Most of the state of California is under flood alerts tonight. Take a look at homes underwater in Gilroy, California. In Santa Cruz County, first responders used boats to rescue people trapped by flooding. Matt Rivers reports for us tonight from Santa Cruz. Tonight, that nonstop barrage of storms in the West forcing families from their homes. There are many evacuation orders across our area right now. That means there is an immediate threat to life. In Santa Cruz County, search and rescue teams patrolling flooded streets. Debris clogging the San Lorenzo River, piling up here against a Highway 1 bridge. This landslide shutting down multiple lanes of Highway 17. High winds helping take down huge trees from Sacramento to San Mateo County. Saturated ground means it doesn't take a lot of wind to knock over big trees like what happened here on this home. Cleanup crews like that one will be busy for a while. California's governor announcing Sunday recent floods claiming more lives than the last two years of wildfires. In the last 10 days, 12 people have lost their lives to these floods. In Santa Barbara County, the entire community of Montecito evacuated. And in the Sierra Nevada mountains, 10 feet of snow in spots, and it's still coming down. The National Weather Service warning of the danger of structural collapse under all that weight. Matt Rivers joins us now from Aptos, California, in Santa Cruz County, where, Matt, I understand it's going to be a long night ahead. Yeah, no question. Here in this neighborhood in Aptos, Lindsay, all these homes and businesses behind me have been evacuated, but more bad news is unfortunately on the way with more wind and rain expected overnight. All of this, even though it's sunny right now, will likely get worse before it gets better. Lindsay? All right, Matt, our thanks to you. Now to reports the classified documents from President Biden's time as vice president have been found at a Biden think tank where the president had an office. A U.S. attorney is now reviewing this and the White House is out with a statement. Let's go right to Terry Moran live in Washington with late reporting. Terry, what do we know so far? Well, Lindsay, tonight we are told that the Department of Justice has launched a preliminary review into these classified documents that were found into an office that President Biden used between the years 2017 and 2019, between the time he was vice president when he was elected president, at the Penn-Biden Center for Global Strategy and Engagement. Uh, that's a think tank where he worked. Uh, sources tell us there are only a handful of documents involved that were found last September. Uh, the in the statement, the White House tonight is confirming this investigation, saying that, quote, a small number of documents with classified markings were discovered when the president's personal attorneys uh, were part packing files locked in a lock, housed in a locked closet at Joe Biden's office space at the Penn Biden Center, where he worked from 2017 to 2019. Uh, and this comes uh, as the Attorney General Merrick Garland has now announced that 
Uh, John Lausch, who is the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, has been appointed to conduct this preliminary review. Uh, he was appointed by President Trump. And, of course, this, this case does bear strong parallels to the investigation which continues into Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump's possession of classified documents in his house at Mar-a-Lago. There's a big difference, however, which is uh, that the Biden team says they turned over those papers the morning after they found them, and there was that long-running dispute between uh, former President Trump and his legal team and the National Archives and the Department of Justice, which ended up in the search warrant and the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Nevertheless, this is a fresh investigation into the possession of classified material at the office where Joe Biden worked between 2017 and 2019. It is being conducted right now uh, by the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, John Lausch. And that's what we know, uh, but we will have more, obviously, as the story develops. Yeah, Terry Moran with these late-breaking developments. Terry, thanks so much, as always. The husband of a missing woman is facing charges linked to her disappearance in Cohasset, Massachusetts. Prosecutors say he deliberately misled investigators in their search for his wife who went missing early New Year's Day. Now police say they found a knife and blood in the couple's basement. Here's Trevor Old. Tonight, Massachusetts prosecutors unveiling shocking details about what they say they found. A bloody knife at the home of the husband charged with misleading the investigation into his wife's disappearance. Fire scene services recovered and found blood in the basement area in the section of the basement. There was also a knife that was found. On the knife, there was also blood. Uh, and part of the knife was damaged. 47-year-old Brian Walsh today pleading not guilty. His wife, Anna, a mother of three, was last seen in the early hours New Year's Day. Brian was previously convicted of wire fraud and while on probation is required to report his whereabouts. Investigators claim he said on January 2nd he only left the house to take his son for ice cream, but surveillance footage shows he also went to Home Depot. Sometime after 4 o'clock, he's on surveillance at that time purchasing about $450 worth of cleaning supplies. Prosecutors say that purchase included mops, tarps, and tape. All right, Trevor all joins us now. Trevor, how is Brian explaining Anna's disappearance to investigators? Well, according to prosecutors, Lindsay, Brian told police that Anna took a ride share to the airport January 1st, but the prosecutors believe that ride never happened, that she never took a ride to the airport, and then she never got on a flight. And beyond that, even, Brian says that she was last seen January 1st. Prosecutors say her phone pinged near their house January 2nd. Lindsay? All right, Trevor Orenthal, thanks to you. New information about the shooting inside an elementary school in Newport News, Virginia. A teacher was critically wounded by her six-year-old first-grade student. Now police say that first-grader intentionally shot his teacher with his mother's gun. Here's Ariel Reshef. Tonight, Virginia officials piecing together how a six-year-old got a gun and shot his teacher, emphasizing the gun did not go off accidentally. This is an unprecedented situation that we're dealing with. A six-year-old. It is unprecedented. This shooting was not accidental. It was intentional. Police saying the first grader took his mother's legally purchased 9mm handgun from home on Friday and pointed it at his 25-year-old teacher, Abigail Warner, as she was instructing the class. It's unclear why. She took a defensive position where she raised her hand, the round went through her hand, exited the rear of her hand, and into her upper chest. Police crediting Werner with clearing the classroom, preventing further violence. I believe she did say lives. 
because I don't know what else might have happened if those kids would have stayed in that room. Lindsay, tonight that teacher is in stable condition and recovering. Police say this is an active investigation and they are working to determine whether the parents of that student should face charges. Lindsay? Ariel, thank you. More than 7,000 nurses at two of the largest hospitals in New York City went on strike demanding better pay, better working conditions, and more staffing. One of those hospitals, Mount Sinai, told ABC News in a statement it offered a 19.1% increased wage proposal, but the nurses rejected that offer. The New York State Department of Health said it's working closely with affected hospitals to ensure the health and safety of patients. Tonight, Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin, who's on the road to recovery one week after suffering cardiac arrest on the football field in the middle of his team's Monday night football game. Hamlin has been transferred to a hospital in Buffalo after doctors in Ohio said they were ecstatic about his recovery and that he had already been walking and eating regular food, but they also warned that his recovery still has a ways to go. ABC's Alex Perez reports on what comes next for Hamlin. Tonight, the Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin, leaving the hospital in Cincinnati, flown to a hospital in Buffalo, the next step of his extraordinary recovery. After being sedated and intubated, Hamlin, doctors say, took a turn for the better. He has been up with physical therapy and occupational therapy, walking the unit, tolerating a regular diet, meeting with his family. It was one week ago today, during Monday Night Football, the Bills' safety suffering cardiac arrest collapsing on the field. Medics treating him less than one minute after his heart stopped as the shocked crowd watched in silence. His transfer to Buffalo coming one day after the Bills' a thrilling victory, scoring an unbelievable touchdown on the opening kickoff. This is storybook! An opening kickoff return for Tamar Hamlin in this place! Hamlin live tweeting from his hospital bed. And doctors say even jumping out of his seat during that eye-opening play, triggering alarms on his medical devices. The Bills honoring the first responders who saved Hamlin's life. Thank you. And we are proud to have after arriving at his new hospital in Buffalo today, Hamlin tweeting, watching the world come together around me on Sunday was truly an amazing feeling. The same love you all have shown me is the same love that I plan to put back into the world and more. So much love all around there. Alex Perez joins us now. Alex, what else are we learning about Hamlin's recovery? Well, Lindsay, we now know that he's listed in stable condition. Doctors are still doing tests, trying to figure out what exactly triggered that cardiac arrest. But overall, his recovery, doctors are describing in one word, remarkable. Lindsay? Remarkable indeed. All right, Alex Perez, our thanks to you. When we come back, the terrifying moments when a suspect held up customers inside a restaurant, who stepped in to stop him? Plus, using music lyrics as evidence in a criminal case of possible legal implications for future artists as the trial for rapper Young Thug kicks off. But first, he was born in the spotlight with his life splashed across newspapers. Now Prince Harry says he wants to control the narrative with his new memoir. He sits down with a Michael Strahan to talk about his alleged fight with Prince William, his fears for his family, and the deals he claims Queen Camilla made with the British press.